Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Thursday was a reminder that New England winter is almost here. It reminded me of a poem I read to my kids, Robert Frost's Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. It got into our rotation after seeing a children's book with the poem beautifully illustrated by Susan Jeffers. Do you like poetry or do you enjoy writing poetry? Today where we live, Connecticut's Poet Laureate Margaret Gibson joins us to talk about writing in the pandemic. We'll also hear her suggestions of other poets to check out, and we want to hear from you, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Margaret Gibson is also the author of 12 books of poems, including The Vigil, a finalist for the National Book Award, and a forthcoming book called The Glass Globe. Margaret, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, Briefly describe the role of Connecticut Poet Laureate. I understand there's also uh, several Poet Laureates around our state in different towns and cities. Um, Yes, I'm the uh, Poet Laureate of the state of Connecticut, and um, I think I'm the seventh one. It's gone back some years now. Um, James Merrill was the first. Um, There has been a proliferation of uh, happily of um, town poet laureates in the state, and there um, is a coalition of laureates, which I am happy to belong to um, as well, Um, but the um, town poet laureates are chosen by their individual towns. And when we think about poet laureates and the work you're doing in your community, uh, sharing poetry but also raising awareness about uh, this art form? Well, it's not just work in the, for me, it's not just work in, um, you know, my local community, which is Preston, Connecticut, um, but it's uh, work throughout the state. And I, as Poet Laureate, I um, chose as my theme a focus on poetry and the environment, um, poets writing during a time of global climate crisis. So I've been sponsoring, um, and I have a grant from the Academy of American Poets, um, much gratitude to them, um, to fund programs so that even during the pandemic, um, when there haven't been readings, um, the green cafes, uh, green poetry cafes that I wanted to start and uh, town poet laureates and other Connecticut poets reading in those um, have been switched to either um, very safe and socially distanced um, outdoor readings, or mostly videos and Zooms. Um, I've also been, uh, David Bibby, also a town poet laureate, and I have um, have videoed um, poets reading out in the open in land preserves, um, one in Litchfield County and um, two or three here in New London County where I live. Mm. Um, so um, lots of activities, including um, soliciting poems from Connecticut poets 
to go into what I'm calling a green anthology, but the title of it is Waking Up to the Earth. Um, and again, so that's focusing can, on the, the climate crisis. That focuses on climate mm. crisis, yes. And, mm. But the real, really, they're nature poems. There are a variety of poems. Um, some, in a time of crisis, it's just as crucial to write love poems to the earth, poems that praise and respect what it is to live on this earth and to pay attention to specific living beings. Um, it's also crucial to write about poems that warn of the dangers we're in um, as temperatures rise, and we know all about those changes. Mm. But um, nature poetry is not just, you know, loving your local hummingbird or tree, <laughs> although <laughs> it includes that. Um, it, nature poetry can make connections between, oh, let's racial and social injustice and environmental injustice between ecosystems and social systems between humans and other living beings i i can't i I mean i think of nature poetry when i think of it i cast a very broad net Mm. so you were appointed poet laureate for the state of connecticut back in 2019 and now we're living in a pandemic there has been a lot of unrest uh, in your time as poet laureate how has that impacted your writing and the way you talk about uh, poetry with others well um the, I mean, I've always written poems about the earth. I've always written poems um, that deal in some ways with um, the intimacy between people and especially, um, you know, it, it, I, my, my late husband had Alzheimer's and I was a caregiver for a very long time. But even before that, there have been poems that, um, that deal with elegy, with, with grief, um, so that um, my conversations with people at times, um, you know, can can uh, uh, not just focus on the social implications of what's happening um, during a pandemic, but but the very intimate, daily, ordinary uh, ways in which we are impacted, and especially with so many people dying, um, there is. Um, there's deep bereavement. Um, it's it's sometimes hard when you hear the numbers and just the numbers. It's hard to remember sometimes that these are uh, not just individual people dying. It's their families and communities um, and even workplaces that are deeply affected by the loss of these um of people who have succumbed to the virus. You're hearing On Where We Live Today on the phone, Margaret Gibson, Connecticut Poet Laureate, as we talk to her about uh, not only poetry, but this moment in time that we're living. You can join us, especially if you find yourself turning to poetry more uh, over the last several months. We want to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, There is a lot of grieving, and uh, people are dealing with uh, not being around uh, the people they enjoy or love, uh, maybe not seeing relatives for some time in this pandemic, Margaret. Have there been any bright sides to this time of contemplation and solitude for you? Um, Well, yeah, I can speak about that in a couple of ways. Um, uh, uh, Since, let's see, uh, poets have um, perhaps, 
been very impacted by not being able to go out and do readings and be with people. But as a rule, poets are very used to um, solitude. Um, That's where our work is done. Um, You don't don't write a poem at a conference table. Um, Mm -hmm. So that, in a way, um, sequestering here where I live, which is a third of a mile back a dirt and gravel road in the woods, um, where I have been... um, writing for um, for 40 and more years is really not unusual for me. So in some ways, the depth of the seclusion um, and of the solitude is increased um, by the sense of knowing um, what is going on around us, um, you know, out there, as I sometimes think of it, in the world. Um, but I've been very happily writing, and as I had indicated, um, have been lucky to be able to keep the my activities as Poet Laureate going strong. Um, the other thing though, that's happened for me um, in the last year or so is that I've begun a new relationship, a lovely love relationship, and um, John and I here at the house in seclusion, both of us writers, um, it's also a time when we've been getting to know each other um, even more deeply. Um, that combined with, I think, discovering, I think many families are discovering the joys of just, and perhaps sometimes the frustrations, of <laughs> being together. Um, people have become more deeply connected, I think. Um, families and many people are um, discovering the natural world in a way they hadn't because you know, um, eating places, bars, restaurants, a lot of activities, concerts, plays are not available. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of people using, uh, taking advantage of uh, land prote- land preserves and public parks uh, and forests going out into the world. Mm-hmm. So there are times of, um, you know, nothing is pure. There's no pure grief without some joy in it. There's no pure love without some grief in it. Um, So the pandemic has forced us to mix it up a bit. Um, But I still say that um, even in times of greatest sorrow um, and and suspense and tension and waiting, um, there are opportunities um, to be happy, to to Mm -hmm. discover deeper joys, and even incidental joys, like wa- uh, watching your dog roll in the grass. <laughs> Margaret, I'm, well, I, I wanted I don't to ask grass you. Grass right now, it's all snow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, same here, same here. I wanted to ask you if you could read uh, one of your poems, "Secret Happiness." I'm going to read a poem or parts of a poem called "Secret Happiness," which has to do with um, uh, being right where I am. Um, during the pandemic, it has an epigraph that says, Do what love requires. Secret happiness. At the rim of the east yard overlooking the dark woods at the border of the wilds, long limber branches of the forsythia grow light as the moon lifts above the far rim of pines. It's late, the moon as white as the cup of milk I stare into, waiting for who knows what. The moon seems to be a magnet. I feel its tug, as do the buds on the forsythia, 
some taut, some split open, a few flowers already full out, flowers as delicate as the mystery of being here always is. Part two. Who can say always now? In the cities, the dying line corridors, the doctors are masked as they triage and calculate and ration. Who can say forever or rational in a time of national and viral panic? And how can anyone dare be happy? Part four. My dear one, my love, old love, you're sleeping late this morning and so I whisper, Idyllic, you said, of our life together here in the country fields and woods where we hide away in an old house, rusticate, and wait the virus out. And if afternoon delight isn't exactly wasted on the young, had anyone told me how I'd welcome our hot blood that we're still alive now, lusty touch, I wouldn't have understood years ago how deep down gratitude can go into the wellspring of passion, nor my outrage now as the COVID-19 cases mount and triage becomes a possibility. This one's 70, that is six years younger than I am. Someone might say as if age alone is reason enough to withhold intensive care. And the last section I'll read. Staring at a rock I once thought I might use as a raw, natural boulder on my grave, I study the rough film of pale lichen holding fast to its surface, also the crack that will, in time, become a channel for rainwater and soak the ferns downhill. Then I hear the nearby aerial cries of red-shouldered hawks hot at their mating, their clear, clear cries your happiness. Again, that's Margaret Gibson, Connecticut's official state poet laureate, reading from uh, portions of her poem, Secret Happiness. Margaret, when did you write that? Um, I, well, last spring. Um, the Forsythia was about to come out. <laughs> so, um, you can always da- uh, date a poem, at least seasonally, by uh, what's going on in the natural world in it, or it's, it's, sometimes you can. Um, so this, the um, you know, we I, I, we started our seclusion here at my house, thinking, oh, it might last two weeks to a month, and uh, that poem was written sort of in late April, I think, when it was becoming very obvious that we were going to be here longer, and the COVID cases were mounting, and the grocery shelves were empty, and uh, we didn't know how the virus was transmitted, and. What's terrible to think is that we are in uh, just as bad a situation now, um, and that the that we nationally, I think, the death rate, has, the death toll has uh, climbed over three hundred thousand, mm. um, and we're they're being very very careful because we're elderly, and I think everyone needs to be very very careful and mindful, um, not only of our own personal joys and sorrows, but of those of other people. It's really a time to pull. It's odd, isn't it? It's a time to pull together while we're secluded. But I believe that poetry and the spirit of love connects connects people um, and makes for um, a community of the heart. And 
to my way of thinking, that's a very strong community. And if I think that sense of community can be deepened through poetry, through prayer, through meditation, through phone calls and Zoom calls and radio programs like this, um, then we'll all get through this, I think. Mm. Well, I could hear, I would love to hear more of uh, your readings, uh, Margaret. Uh, I so appreciate uh, you taking time to read part of Secret Happiness here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll continue talking with Connecticut Poet Laureate Margaret Gibson after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My guest today, Margaret Gibson, Connecticut's official state poet laureate. Do you enjoy poetry? Have you been finding more time to write poetry? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. You could also call in 888-720-9677. Uh, Margaret, you spoke earlier about this anthology uh, that you're editing, uh, focused on the natural world, focused on the yeah. time that we're living in. Could you talk more about um, some of the poets that uh, you're hoping to include and and their feedback on this very important issue. Uh, well, we have um, we have read um, the many 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 um, submissions that were sent to us poems, and of course we couldn't take everyone, but we do. We have a list now. We know the poems and the poets who's, who are going to be represented in this wonderful anthology called "Waking Up to the Earth" with the subtitle. Connecticut poets in a time of global climate crisis. Um, I can tell you some of the names. I can't read all of them because there are a lot of poets in Connecticut. We're very rich in poetry here in this state. Um, And most of the poets in the anthology have one poem, but a few have a couple. Um, It's going to be a book of about a little over 100 pages. Uh, with a beautiful cover um, by um, an artist who used to live in Connecticut named John Friedman. Um, But the poets, shall I just give you a sampling of names? I mean, it may mean some things to your listeners, um, but give a shout-out to a few of them. Um, uh, Robert Cording, uh, Carol Chaput, Calera Rossini, Edwina Trentham, Mary Guitar, Christy Max Williams, um, Sarah Strong, um, Marilyn Nelson and Rennie, well- Rennie McQuilkin, both of whom have been Poet Laureates previously, Vivian Shipley, Ben Grossberg, um, let's see, Jose Gonzalez, Frederick Douglas Knowles, Rhonda Ward, David Leff, lots of people. <laughs> mm. And and apologies for those whose names I just looked down the list of the contents and read randomly. I'm sorry if I didn't read your name. And that will Um, be released at around Earth Day? It's going to be um, available. Uh, It's being published by Grayson Books. Um, uh, Jenny Connors has a poem in it, and she's the wonderful editor of that not-for-profit press. Um, in Hartford, it's going to be released by Grayson in um, in early April, maybe even a little before, and it will be available for Earth Day and um, hopefully 
Um, you know, there will be uh, uh, more readings as the late spring and summer move along, and the book will be available to sale for sale and mm-hmm. the, and for course adoptions. When you think about uh, this anthology, earlier you talked about uh, the fact that uh, when we reflect on the natural world, we should also be thinking about uh, human actions uh, that are impacting it. And I wonder if you could talk more about this idea of environmental grief. Um, Yeah, um, I'd be happy to. Um, Environmental grief... um, includes what we know locally as well as globally Um, so that if there is a forest near you that's clear-cut the impact on you I'll say on me um, will be uh, a loss of beauty um, a loss of environment for all sorts of habitat for all sorts of um, other beings besides human beings. Now, there may be a local profit monetarily, but the, the impact um, is, is visual, it impacts beauty, and it, infa- it, it makes a practical impact. When you multiply that out, or when you, mul- and, or when you multiply out emissions and um, global warming, um, you get a a much wider impact. Seas begin to rise, rise, pesticide runoff spoils rivers, industrial waste creates brownfields, uh, incinerators get put in poor neighborhoods, um, air quality and incidence of illness go up in um, poor neighborhoods, um, species go extinct, um, our lives become endangered. It's a, there's an enormous ripple effect from everything we do. So that grieving needs to be, needs to include the understanding that everything is connected, that what happens locally has an impact further on and further on and further on, that if something happens upriver, it's going to affect the ocean. If it happens in the ocean... Um, you know, it's going to affect cities on the coast. We need to grieve as if we are not just one person, but also one planet. And that's what I mean by environmental grief. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, we can grieve for the loss of an individual tree, an individual bird, an individual species, an individual person. But we also have to realize that everything is connected and to start thinking holistically and really changing our lives, I think. Mm. And for the people who read these poems, energizing us uh, to action? I hope so. Um, that's, that's a very good reason for, um, for having the poems uh, come out there, the book of poems, and to, to sponsor readings and videos. Um, it's one thing, and it's very important to understand the science and the social implications, and it's very important to take action. But when one is really realizes what is at stake and one's heart is touched, that changes the quality of your action. Um, it makes it deeper. 
It makes it it's um, heartfelt energy sustains you uh, because it's not going to be an they're, they're not the changes that need to be made won't be easy ones um, to make. Margaret, I understand that you grew up in Virginia. When did you find yourself drawn to poetry? Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, I I was always a reader, and I read uh, constantly um, as a child and as a young woman, and of course as a teenager I found my way to some poems. Um, I was lucky to have wonderful literature classes in school, and in college, I went to a college in Virginia, I managed to find myself in an de- in English department that emphasized um, creative writing. So I was able to take for credit every year, every semester that I was in college, a creative writing class. Um, I didn't know anything about poetry, really, I discovered when I took my first writing class. It's one thing to read poems. It's quite something else to write one, um, or even to know what a poem is. And it was it's great to enter something that you think you know about and then discover that you don't know anything at all. <laughs> Uh, because real action and real um, intimacy comes from not knowing, uh, from asking questions and then doing a lot of hard listening. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started writing uh, with with commitment when I was 23 years old, um, and the commitment was sort of a little, little playful thing I had with myself that I would write and give it everything I had until I was, oh, 30. And, uh, boy, I thought 30 was just decades away. <laughs> I didn't realize how close it was um, until I was 30 or until my first book came out. And, um, of course, the hook there is that if you give anything, everything you've got, you get hooked by it. You can't stop writing, mm-hmm. even if you are 30 and your first book hasn't come out. My, my first book came out when I was 31. <laughs> so um, a long apprenticeship and a, just a love of language and the roots of words. We just have a few minutes left, Margaret. I'm wondering if you could give some recommendations to our listeners of poets that you're reading or poets they that they should explore if they're new to poetry. Um, well, there are <laughs> there are so many. Um, I hardly know where to. Um, um, Jane Hirschfield, um, Chase Twitchell. Carolyn Forche, Arthur Z. I'm just naming some poets who are not Connecticut poets. Um, go back and read um, Rilke. Go back and read American poets who've written very differently about the natural world. Uh, William Carlos Williams, Robertson Jeffers. Um, you mentioned Frost earlier, of course. Um, Walt Whitman. They're just... Mm-hmm. We this country has um, is just blessed with many many wonderful uh, poets. Gary Snyder, um, gosh, I could go on forever. <laughs> That's not, I think right? those I think those are some good recommendations, and of course uh, Margaret Gibson and that forthcoming uh, collection of poetry. Uh, is it next year the Glass Globe, Margaret? It's coming out in the fall of twenty twenty one. Um, I have a poem, of course, coming out in the um, in the anthology in April, um, and um, you know, poems appear in journals and things like that. But the new book mm-hmm. is coming out in the fall of 2021. Mm-hmm. Something um, to look for. 
Something to look forward to, definitely. Margaret Gibson, again, Connecticut's official state poet laureate. We thank you so much for your time here on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to learn about a community project to encourage residents to write and share their poetry. First, it's the last day of Connecticut Public Radio's end-of-the-year fundraising campaign. Support the conversations you hear on Where We Live with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. Hi, I'm Betsy Kaplan. I'm one of the producers on The Colin McEnroe Show, and I'm here with Ali Oshinsky. Um, Hi. A former intern on the Colin McEnroe Show, current wonderful reporter for WNPR Connecticut Public. And we're asking you to take just a couple minutes uh, from where we live to connect to the station if you like what you're hearing. And if you tune into where we live every morning, you're probably someone that likes news and you like it in the morning and you like to know what's going on. Uh, Where we live is a terrific show. It not only tells you about what's going on in Connecticut, um, but it it also ventures into other things, other areas that uh, they think might be sort of fun and important for you to listen to. You're listening to an interesting show now on pandemic poetry. I mean, there's not many places you can turn and hear a show like that. So if it's important to you and and you uh, are curious and inspired by what you hear, give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online too at wnpr.org. That's one of the things I really like, Betsy, about um, not just public radio, but the shows that you and all the awesome show producers produce at Connecticut Public Radio, uh, you get to be, you know, a witness to history by doing just the straight up news, but you also do things like this. Um, and and definitely with you and Colin, uh, you do creative ideas and Lucy and Carmen and Tess put together some really awesome ideas um, that show you not just like, you know, I think of it as like the culture section of a newspaper that happens. um, And it's sort of, you know, every week you get news on Wednesdays in the wheelhouse. um, And you also get this awesome, this awesome pandemic poetry. Um, And I think what's really cool about radio is that like, poetry is really meant to be heard, I think. I mean, that that's my sort of personal opinion. Um, That's another thing you hear on the radio opinions. But um, Poetry is meant to be heard, and so you hear it on this radio show. Um, and it's a really beautiful thing to just sit back and listen to. Um, so if you appreciate that, get on your computer or your phone or your tablet, wherever you can get on the internet, and go to wnpr.org slash donate. Um, and yeah, Betsy, I just, I mean, I want to thank you right here for producing awesome shows like this and hopefully others will be inspired by this, this kind of, uh, this kind of content on the air. And, and don't underestimate what you're doing as a reporter. I mean, you're, you're a new Thank reporter you. in a brand new area that we haven't covered anymore. And that's one of the things that we're also doing, I think really well at the station. A lot of stations right now are contracting the news that they're doing. They're not, when I say contracting what I mean, yeah. they're finishing the news that they prevent present to people they're not covering as many beats. They're not go, going in depth um, as they could or maybe would like to. But they haven't got much choice for whatever reason, often finances. But we're, we're doing the opposite. You know, we depend on you to contribute to the station to keep us going. We don't get a lot of funding. We don't get any funding really from commercial sources. And we don't get a lot of funding from government sources either. It mostly all comes from you. Um, yeah. So you have to be beholden to that. And we're not as... Um, hurt by the cycles that are caused by things like pandemics. So 
you're getting great news. And you're right, Ellie. We try to talk on our shows and, and also on your beat, a brand new beat uh, in the Naugatuck Valley. Um, yep, the valley. We don't hear. That's right. To um, bring stories that we don't hear in other places, to dive in different corners that are not necessarily nooks and crannies that aren't investigated as often. Yeah, and that's that's a good point, Betsy, because I'm new to the station, and some people might say, oh, that's a new voice. And also, they probably hear Brenda. Uh, Brenda Leon and I are here as part of the Report for America initiative, and we joined this job, this newsroom, remotely in June. So um, I think that's just a real testament to like the strength of the, the support from Connecticut Public Radio listeners that um, not only could could they sustain our ongoing operations, but add more positions during a pandemic, especially early in the pandemic when financially, you know, a lot of things, I mean, things financially have been up in the air. um, But for those who have a little extra income, things were a little scary early on. And now I think we're in a point where folks can see that there are greener pastures ahead. So if you have 20 extra dollars or 15 or 10 extra dollars a month, um, pick up the phone and call one 800 584-2788 and you know share a little bit of that bounty with the the public radio that keeps you through the day and the next generation i always say for that next generation of listeners who can't contribute yet at this time and not only voices you hear lots of familiar voices that you've come to trust so if it's important to you give us a call 1-800-584-2788 this is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. You can hear this show live uh, during the week. But if you can't listen at nine, you can also download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. Now, we just talked about the power of poetry with Connecticut's official state poet laureate, Margaret Gibson. Joining us now is J.C. Wayne to talk about a poetry project that encourages poetry writing to connect with the community. Uh, J.C. Wayne is founder of the Poetry Project and author of Voicing Art. JC, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us more tell us more about the Poetry Project. The Poetry Project is a community initiative that I founded a little over a year ago. Uh, it was created because I noticed a little bit of a gap in what was available to people interested in poetry and interested in exploring it. And that is that similar to what uh, Margaret said about Connecticut, Vermont is chock full of poets. um, And it is also chock full of incredible opportunities to receive critique and engage in critique for um, burgeoning or established writers. What I wanted to create and what poetry provides is opportunities that are welcoming, inclusive, um, do not involve criticism but instead create a free space to roam freely. And we found with that that uh, voices that we don't necessarily normally hear are heard. And many people who believe that poetry is intimidating uh, discover that that is a myth. Now, you recently had an event in New Haven's Westville neighborhood called Voicing Heart Love Poems to Westville. And I'm quoting here, to soothe the coronavirus bruised heart of our community through poetry, food, and public art. Tell us about the response you've been getting in Connecticut, and who did you hear from? Yeah, it's been it's been quite interesting. Uh, this is a program that was made possible by a Livable City Initiative grant from the city of New Haven. And uh, we got the grant at the end of February, and then Corona hit. 
And so this was originally intended to be an in-person series of events. And we had to, like so many other things, change to a purely virtual environment. I think what that did was that it created, in some ways, less local public engagement, but it opened the doors to more international and national engagement. So that's been really fascinating. We ended up having uh, seven poems submitted for our poetry reading event, um, which was the second in the series of three. And they came from local sources in Westville, from uh, people in Chicago and Vermont and as far afield as Australia. So I think we've spread love for Westville even further than we anticipated. So tell us more about, uh, you had mentioned, you know, the, the goal of Poe Archery Project, you know, helping people uh, who might be intimidated when they think about uh, writing. Uh, so the people that participated, were they first time uh, writers? And how did you guide them through the process? Yeah, they were a range. Um, some, like myself, have been writing since they were two. But the majority of people are pretty new to poetry. And our uh, youngest participant is age nine. Uh, and that, that really warmed my heart because I work, with, um, I work with children, new Americans, refugees, and those who've experienced trauma. And so it's really one of my greatest goals to have young people mm. uh, involved as early as possible in experiencing the joys and the expressive potential of poetry. Uh, think, the way uh, that we, I'm sorry. Uh, JC, I think we have a clip of, of the, the nine-year-old you're talking about. Is it Kaylee? It is. Uh, she attends uh, Davis Academy for the Arts in New Haven. And I just wanted to share her poem about theater. It's something that she loves. Let's hear it. It is a new day. The theater is open for display. The curtains are red and rising. The platform is brown. There are directors staging all the actors around. The stage crew is cheering to the cast, Go break a leg! The characters are sweet and kind. I look out to the audience and feel the excitement. The charge and love, this is quite the day. From the people who have attended playing a play. That is very divine. All who watch and see all the play through. The audience clap and cheer. Say, woohoo! I loved that when I heard it, JC, because you could hear not only uh, Kaylee's energy, but her love of theater. And that's something that we all need, right? It's remember our passions and the things that we love in our lives, even if it's been difficult these last few months. Absolutely. So tell me more about how you plan to continue this series. Yeah, well, the good news is that we had many of the key players from the Westville community uh, present for the poetry reading, which you had asked the prior question about how we guided people through the process. Mm -hmm. And we held a workshop in October, and I actually came down and <laughs> facilitated the work workshop from the outdoor courtyard of the Mitchell Library. We were originally <laughs> supposed to be at the Mitchell Library. And uh, of course it rained, um, so that made it poetically dramatic. But the, but the people who were involved in the workshop also attended the reading and they agreed to my uh, great delight that this was really a very important 
event for the community, even in its virtual form. And so it is our intention in 2021, when it's safe to do so, to restage this entire series, um, beginning from scratch again, in person, as it was originally intended. So mm -hmm. that that is what we hope to do going forward. Um, there will be a public art reveal that we'll do based on, I think, at least what we've done so far, and hopefully we'll add to when we go in person, that will involve creating um, excerpts of the poems that we received on metal signs that are backgrounded with images of Westville, and then hopefully placed in the courtyard garden at Mitchell Library. So that will be a way to be able to uh, have these poems live on in perpetuity. We'll also be placing booklets that we create from the poems and also the recipes that people provided as part of the recipe swap uh, in the little free libraries around town and in all of the schools and, and the uh, public library here in Westville. Mm. It sounds like a really great project. Can I ask you, JC, how the pandemic has affected uh, your poetry? Yeah, it um, it has certainly made it explode. And that's something that I didn't entirely anticipate. It's created so many incredible opportunities that I didn't expect. Uh, and one of the most um, satisfying ones is to have created a poem of the week opportunity for libraries in my local region it could be done anywhere of course and it was it was actually sparked by an article i read about uh about the poet laureate of uh, portsmouth new hampshire mm -hmm. and that is that we're providing a poem of the week that i'm right that i've been writing all throughout the pandemic to the local library communities in shelburne vermont and uh, montpelier vermont and so that has been something that's really provided kind of a heartbeat of creativity um, and a continued inspiration. I have um, fortunately have worked via live stream since 1994, updating myself a little bit. So my life didn't change radically in terms of how I work. Um, and so it's been very interesting to see the public poetry events that I've been hosting over the last year and a half, which is the community voicing art poetry reading where we uh, write poems inspired by art exhibits and poetry of nature walks, plein air poetry of nature walks, where we actually go out into some of the beautiful scenery of Vermont and take our inspiration from nature and, and write on, in plein air uh, together. Um, those always had live streamed components. And so we have had participants from Australia and Ireland and all around the country. And that's actually, um, just gotten bigger. I received a message yesterday from an English professor in Istanbul, Turkey, who requested whether she could come into the voicing art poetry reading that I'm hosting tomorrow with 13 of her first year students. So it's just been um, wonderful to see how the limitations uh, that are imposed by the coronavirus also have provided openings, but that's not to diminish in any way um, the inequities that, that this coronavirus has revealed. And it, um, I think it's just made all the more clear the, um, the connection between our inner landscape and our outer landscape and how very important it is 
for all lives to have the opportunity for their voices to be heard. One of the unexpected moments during this crisis, early on in March, uh, an article appeared in a local paper about a uh, an elderly gentleman with dementia who was found in the woods. Um, he had fallen into a river and it was 22 degrees out. And the, the article was about a dog, Canine Billy, who saved his life. And it was just incredible. That was an incredible poetic moment to me because I tend to work with very macro and talk about big issues, existential issues that affect us as a, as a whole, as a human family. But this juxtaposition of this incredibly personal vision of this elderly gentleman not remembering who he was, um, you know, freezing to death almost. They said he would have died in minutes if the dog hadn't found him. And this incredible connection that we have even with the animal kingdom and all beings in nature, as Margaret said. So um, it's been a very, a very um, stimulating and catalyzing time. And I, I hope for the good for all of us. You've been hearing J.C. Wayne, founder of the Poetry Project again. Uh, she's been working on a project in uh, New Haven's Westville uh, community through a Livable Cities Initiative grant, uh, helping people see the healing power of poetry. J.C., thank you so much for joining the show today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Uh, today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, coming up on Monday, if you've ever been to a dietitian to lose weight, you've probably heard the same advice to eat certain kinds of food. On the next Where We Live, American dietitians often leave out room to eat diverse cuisines and food groups. Leaving out a lot of ethnic food, we learn how some nutritionists are trying to change that. Now, today is also the last day of our end-of-the-year fundraising campaign. We talk about a lot of issues on this show. We talk about uh, and talk to a lot of Connecticut residents and policymakers about our communities, and we spend time understanding issues that impact all of us. Please support where we live on this last day of Connecticut Public Radio's end-of-the-year fundraising campaign. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. Hi, everyone. You are listening to Connecticut Public Radio, uh, if you didn't know that. And I am Ali Oshinsky. I'm here with um, producer Betsy Kaplan from The Colin McEnroe Show. And uh, I'm a reporter here. Um, and we are here once again, surprised, to ask you to give a little bit of money, give a little love, um, and in return, maybe get a hat or some socks or something. Um, but Betsy, I have a Christmas gift idea that I wanted to share with our listeners today, um, since they're calling in and supporting us at WNPR.org slash donate. So my roommate and I are, um, you know, we're staying home for Christmas this year. It's a little different. So, and you know, we might not, we might not have that many gifts to give. So we're taking things from the kitchen and wrapping them up and putting them under the Christmas tree. And, um, you know, I thought so too. She came up with the idea and I was like, this is amazing. I don't think she's taken anything from the kitchen. I've only done it so far. So, but what it does is it's teaching me to appreciate, like, I love a lot of my kitchen items and it's teaching me to appreciate the things I already have. And in a similar way, I'm going to see if I can thread the needle here, Betsy. I think this is a good opportunity. You know, you've heard us come on and ask for money before, but this is a good opportunity to appreciate something you already have, which is public radio. And the cool thing about public radio is even if you don't pay, it doesn't go away. Um, so, you know, in this season of appreciating both new things, if that if you can afford that, or if you can't, thinking about appreciating, or even if you can, appreciating the stuff you already have, um, it really, you know, opens 
opens my eyes to the things that the bounty that I've been um, provided. So if you want to do that, um, Betsy can tell you how to donate. Yeah, I love your idea, Allie. It's 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. But you're so right. You know, I have also, I mean, I've also many years ago actually realized the importance of what I have because it can go away really easily. And this station isn't going anywhere right now. We don't like to threaten you with the idea that if you don't donate, it's going <laughs> away. It's not. But it yeah. definitely depends on, your, on reciprocity. You know, it's a mutual respect between you, the listener, and us, the producers and providers. And once you contribute, you will feel different. You know, you will feel like you belong to this station and you already belong to this station. You know, we don't tell you what you have to give. We depend on you. You call us, you, you communicate with us on social media, you come on our guests as guests on our shows, you pitch us ideas. All of those things happen. Reporters reach out to you all the time. You communicate with one another. We are in this together and we can do this together and we can get through things like COVID and elections and everything else together. I hate to sound so cliche, but there's <laughs> truth to that at this holiday season. 1-800- That's what this job has taught me. 2788 or wnpr.org and thank you.